Hey, um, we are continuing our series in Matthew. We've been in it for a while, and we just finished the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of the seminal conglomeration of Jesus' teachings. And uh, what we're about to transition into is actually the life of Jesus. What did he do while he was here on earth? So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this evening, Matthew chapter 8. Now, um, The first block of teaching in Matthew, uh, or of text in Matthew, is primarily centered around teaching. What does it mean to be an apprentice? What does it mean to follow the way of Jesus? And then what Matthew transitions into in this exact passage that we're about to read tonight is um, basically a demonstration of what he just taught about, demonstration of the kingdom, and then a very intense conversation. (laughs) If you know this passage of scripture, there is a really intense conversation. It's like Jesus does all these amazing things in the next couple uh, chapters of Matthew, and at at the very end of all the amazing things, he basically says, this is the cost of following me. So that's what we're gonna read tonight. We've got a lot of chunk of scripture to read, um, but it's story, so it's fantastic. Let's jump in in verse one. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, remember he's just been teaching up on the mountainside, large crowds followed him. He's popular. He's famous. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Verse five, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Verse eight, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell to this one go and he goes and this one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, he said, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go. Let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. Verse 16, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and he healed all the sick. That's a good night. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You tried to escape across the lake, I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father, Jesus told him. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. (laughs) That's pretty intense. 
couple of years ago, um, I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan for this conference, and it was a Catholic conference with all these different guys presenting and just some amazing ideas and amazingly intelligent people talking about the scriptures and faith and work and all of that. And there was this in, this in particular talk that I was interested in, um, who was, it was done by the head of the philosophy philosophy department at Boston College. And uh, he was giving this talk on virtue, and he was talking about the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, if you've ever taken a philosophy class or you've ever read philosophers before, you know that really the, the search is for the good life. What is the good, the true, and the beautiful in life? What does it actually look like, and what do those things mean? And uh, so he gave this amazing talk, and primarily he talked about C.S. Lewis. He had been friends with one of C.S. Lewis's friends, and he talked about C.S. Lewis and how in all of his books, his characters represented the good, the true, and the beautiful. And really, that's what makes a complete virtuous story. So I was just kind of blown away by this. I love C.S. Lewis. I, I was taking tons of notes. It was just incredible. The next day, I'm on my way back to Portland, and I go to the airport. And the Grand Rapids airport is very small. So I go to the airport, and I'm walking through the terminal trying to find my, um, my plane, and I, I, I had a couple hours to kill, so I, I'm looking for food, and I look over, and sitting in the food court at this restaurant is the guy who gave the talk. And this guy, he's like in his late 80s, he was like literally a lot, he, if you know who Sheldon Van Aken is, he was friends with Sheldon Van Aken, he was, he's an old guy. So anyway, I, I, I think to myself, when am I gonna get this opportunity again to go and talk with this guy? Like this, I'm never, I'm never gonna get this kind of opportunity. I need to go and just ask him a few questions about his talk from yesterday. My dream, his nightmare, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, I, I walk up to him and I say, oh, excuse me, hey, so listen, sorry to interrupt you, I know, I was at your talk yesterday and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind me having lunch with you. <laughs> hey, ask and you will receive people, all right? So I asked and he, and he's like, uh, yeah, totally, sit down, he's a super nice old guy and um, he basically begins to unpack why uh, beauty matters in life. And I'm a lover of beauty, I love beauty. And, and he said this, I will never forget this line, he says, if you want any good to be done in the world, if you want truth to be heard and believed, then you need beauty. Beauty is the gatekeeper to everything that is good and true. It comes before it. It moves us into what is good. It moves us into what is true. And what I want to tell you this evening is that Jesus, especially in a story like this, is the kind of beauty that will move you into the kingdom if you're willing to take his beauty into your life. And I think that what Jesus is doing in this story is he's showing us what it looks like when people receive a touch from heaven. You know, there's something about tasting and seeing the goodness of God in the life of someone else that makes you want it in your own. And I believe that what he's doing here is giving humanity a taste of the beauty of the kingdom. And so what I want to talk to you about this evening and what I've even titled this message is receiving the kingdom and giving the kingdom. How do we receive the kingdom like they received the kingdom in that story and how do we give it like Jesus gave it in this story? So to do that, I want to look at these three encounters just a little bit closer. So um, if you're taking notes, write this down. The first encounter is with the outcast. 
This man with leprosy comes to Jesus and he has this horrible skin disease. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard of leprosy before. We don't really have leprosy around today or at least it's very small numbers of people have it. Um, But it's this skin disease that basically killed the nerve endings on your limbs. And so people oftentimes, especially in the ancient world, would end up up burning themselves and, 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 and actually even losing limbs because of it. They would end up cutting their fingers and their fingers would fall off. It was this horrible disease. Eventually part of your body would turn just black and then just eventually sever themselves from the other part of your body. Horrible, horrible stuff. And it was incredibly contagious. And so for this man in the story, this leper, he had to live his life going around and and telling people, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. He would actually proclaim it wherever he went. So think about this. You know, we have the after party at Tilt pretty frequently. As you make your way down to Tilt, imagine just, hey, I'm unclean. Anybody, I'm unclean, just be careful, don't come around me because it's so contagious. Uh, Lepers had to live outside of Israel, so whenever Israel had a camp, they lived outside the camp. Um, Whenever, when Israel built a city, they lived outside the city. There was this rule that that rabbis, they couldn't even get six feet, uh, closer than six feet to a leper, they had to keep a distance. And so uh, lepers knew this, They, they wouldn't get close to rabbis, they're like, oh my gosh, this is like five feet, Sorry, you know, like that was their life. And, and what is fascinating about this guy is that he doesn't, in the text, it doesn't say he comes up to Jesus, unclean, unclean, would you heal me? He just, he, he just comes right up to Jesus, he's desperate. You can imagine all of the lonely nights that he's had. Not only is he afflicted with this horrible disease, but he doesn't even get to live around the people he loves and who love him. And so his kids are growing up without him getting to watch. And not that far away at all, just over there. And he's tired of it. And he comes to Jesus, and he kneels before Jesus. Some of your text says he worships him, but what truly fascinates me about this man is his question. Look at your Bibles, verse two. A man with leprosy came, knelt before him, and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I love that. Such faith, such confidence. I know what you can do. You can do anything. You can take even this disease away from me. But what I love even more is that Jesus answers the implicit question of his character. Did you catch it? Because what he, what he says is, I, I, if, I know that you can if you are willing. And what he's asking is, I know you can do anything, but are you good enough to do it for me? Do you want to? What what kind of character do you have? And I love what Jesus does. He responds not with words, but with a physical demonstration of his character, and he heals the man. I'm willing. Think about this. It says in the scriptures that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. So, what I like to say, and what some of my friends like to say, is that Jesus is perfect theology. If you want to know what the Father is like, you just have to look at what the Son does. And he reveals the character of the Father. He actually teaches us about the character of the Father. So, it says in John chapter 10 that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus said that he came to give life, not take it away. And so when we think about sickness or or, uh, any kind of um, malady in somebody's life, 
we, when we see the fingerprints of the enemy on it, when we see s- stealing, when we see killing, when we see any level of destruction, we, just like if I were to leave my fingerprint right here and somebody would know, oh, Alex was here, we can say the enemy's been here. And the enemy's done this. What is Jesus' desire? To destroy the works of the enemy. And so he goes around undoing <laughs> what the enemy had done. The second encounter is with a centurion. If you're taking notes, this man's a Gentile. He's a part of the Roman army. His name means that he leads about 100 men. And what we have to remember about this encounter is that this man is not a part of the people of God. He's not. He's a Gentile. And remember, Rome is occupying Israel. It would be like, I've used this with the youth group, it's kind of an extreme example, but it would be like if North Korea invaded and they took occupation up in Portland and then they sectored off certain parts of the city and said, you can go here, but you can't go there. And this stuff over here, these homes, they're for us, but you get those homes over there. So you have to imagine that this man is a national enemy, an occupying enemy, who's probably been violent, who's probably had commit, he's committed crimes, I'm sure, against the Israelites. And we can sense that he kind of knows this. He's like, hey, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my home. So just say the word, right? And notice that Jesus doesn't come to him and say, hey, look, brother, I I wish I could help, but man, you've done a lot of bad stuff. (laughs) Let's just be honest. You know, and, and I have a buddy of mine who he said that you did this to, to him, and so, you know, how about this? Quit your job, and then we'll talk about healing. He doesn't say that. Why? Because we just read in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus blesses peacemakers, and that Jesus himself is nonviolent, and he's, he's speaking about that. So why doesn't he ask the man to quit his job? Because here's why. Jesus knows that it's God's kindness that draws people to repentance. It's God's kindness that changes people's minds about the world, about themselves, and about him. And so it must be our conviction as well that we don't argue people about their behavior into the kingdom, but we actually demonstrate love, just like Jesus loved this man. And it's one of the most compelling things in the entire world to be loved when you don't deserve it. I'm going to. (laughs) I will. Because here's the deal, in the church, oftentimes what we, the, the way we feel safe is by setting up structures that control other people's behavior in order to keep a semblance of order. But God puts a tree in the garden. <laughs> you didn't know what that means. What that means is that God is willing to have a mess if it means there can be love. See, God says that we belong before we behave. And that is one of the most beautiful things in the whole gospel. That is the gospel. And we see it right here with this story with this man. What I love about this encounter is that this man uses his understanding of a leadership structure to believe Jesus for a miracle without Jesus even coming to the person who's sick. Just say the word. His faith rocked Jesus. It says he was amazed. He was like, oh my gosh. And he says that the man who has the greatest faith in all of Israel, it wasn't the rabbi, it wasn't a teacher, 
It wasn't a nonprofit owner or a PhD. It wasn't a pastor. It was who many would consider to be a national threat, which means that any of you in this room tonight, you can have the kind of faith that rocks God. It doesn't matter who you are, what your occupation is, what you do, you are a minister of the Most High King and your faith moves the heart of God. Finally, he comes to the woman. Finally, Jesus encounters Peter's mother-in-law. Women in this day and age were at the bottom of society and even Jewish women were not allowed to enter the inner courts of the temple where God's healing presence was. And so God came to her. (laughs) He's like, I don't know what they're doing over there in that temple, but I'm just gonna come to you. (laughs) And she doesn't even ask. I just think it's God's kindness. I don't, maybe I'm wrong, I could be wrong, but I think God just really loves women. And I think that God, he doesn't even need her to ask. He just has compassion in his heart and he wants to see heaven come to her. And he touches her and she's healed. Now watch what happens, because this is just fascinating. Verse 16, it says, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. (laughs) It's awesome. Now, word continues to spread, as you can imagine, right? He does this amazing stuff, and so all these people, like, he becomes a magnet for impossibilities. That's one way you know that you have the power of God in your life, is when people with problems come and get into your business. And you're like, why are all, all my friends have all of these problems, and it feels like it's dragging me down. No, you're supposed to be the one who drags them up. (laughs) That's what you're supposed to do. (laughs) And so, just, we should rejoice when people bring impossible situations to us, because they did it to Jesus. And he heals all of them and he casts out demons and I love the explanation, verse 17, it says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet of Isaiah. Now this is a promise of God from the book of Isaiah. It says he took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. There's an exchange that's being talked about and now we're seeing it play out in reality. Here's the rest of that passage, I just love this. It says surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds were healed. Man, that's good, because, I, I, like, guys, there are, there's almost no Sunday that goes by that I don't think about this passage, because what that passage is saying is that Jesus paid a cost for healing, for salvation, for right standing with God, and for us as a church to not reach for those things that he paid for on behalf of one another and for ourselves is to not give Jesus his full reward for the pain and separation he endured. Matthew is super purposeful in putting these three stories together because these are three types of people, the leper, the Gentile, the woman who are essentially on the fringes of Israel and they come to Jesus with three impossible situations and the beauty of Jesus, here's his beauty, there's no other religion that has a central figure or a God who who identifies with the least of a culture and does the impossible. It just doesn't exist. That's his beauty. And so here's the deal. Regardless of where you're at this evening, what your experience has been up to this point, um, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, how do we receive the kingdom and how do we give the kingdom? So, so first, if you're taking notes, how do we receive the kingdom? I don't know about you, but for me, it's hard for me to imagine reading a passage like this and not wanting to see it in my life. I never want to know that something is true about God and not have experienced it. 
Moses actually shared the same desire when he went up to God and he said, I don't wanna just know your character, I wanna know your ways. I wanna see your glory. That's what we were made for. And there could be a temptation that when we read the stories of Jesus, like these, we could let them remain in history, but Jesus seemed to think that the signs of the inbreaking kingdom that we just read about wouldn't stop. In fact, he said these signs would follow those who believe. <laughs> I believe there's an opportunity when we read about Jesus in a specific way, we can encounter him in that same way. That when we actually read about the stories of God, they're like little prophetic messages into our lives today, all the way in 2018, about what God still wants to do. And I think that within this story, there are really two things that we actually have to get right in our hearts in order to see the kingdom in the same way that these people saw the kingdom, and that's lordship and faith. Lordship and faith, just a note on each of these, lordship. You know, we read this haunting conversation at the end of these healing stories. Anybody can get pumped about the healing. But then you see this conversation, it's kind of jarring. It says in verse 22, Jesus told the man, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And you're like, it's his dad. (laughs) Really? (laughs) But after the healing, Jesus says, did you see the kingdom? Okay, good, now I'm gonna lay down the gauntlet. If you were moved by what you saw, if you were amazed by the kingdom, there's a cost to living in this kind of blessing for life, and it's giving all of yourself to me. I must be your Lord. At some level, I think Jesus is questioning how much people love the comfort of earth in comparison with the glories of heaven. It's like, do you love your life so much that you're willing to forsake my inbreaking kingdom? Because if you are, you can get that. But if you aren't, if you're not satisfied with the status quo, then there's, there's heaven and it's coming. What is it worth to you? You see, miracles are amazing. It's amazing when, you know, hearing Kate's story, wherever you're at, Kate, it's amazing hearing that story. I had a gal, Cassie, she's sitting somewhere over here. Um, she just, she came down for prayer uh, just this last week at, for a back issue she's had for a year. She'd been seeing a chiropractor a couple times a month or something like that, and she just said, it, all pain went away. She went to the chiropractor this week. She's like, I didn't even need to go. It's amazing to see the miraculous break into our space and actually change realities for people. Um, <laughs> But how many of you guys know that miracles get old? <laughs> Not many of you guys. <laughs> miracles actually do get old, and here's, here's what, it, it might sound controversial, but think about this, Israel got tired of the manna. <laughs> Jesus knows this, and it's why he uses miracles as signs to point to a greater reality. See, you would never hear about a new restaurant over on the east side, and all your friends are talking about it, and you think, oh my gosh, I'm missing out. You're like, FOMO, I have a fear of missing out. I need to go and check this restaurant out. And so you're like, okay, this Saturday I'm going. You wouldn't drive to the restaurant, see the sign of the restaurant, and go, that was awesome, and turn around and go home. (laughs) Right? No, because the sign points to the greater reality, and that's the meal. (laughs) These miracles, what we're experiencing here in this space when we come together, all they are are signs pointing us to get close to him. He's the meal. <laughs> Feast on him. <laughs> Jacob and I, Jacob Vigil and our, and our wives are planting a church in Newburgh um, 
and uh, we're super excited about it. And Jacob, just the other day, he said, you know, I could, if we could, boil, we've been talking for months about our vision and really clarifying what we're about. And he, he goes, if I could just boil down our vision, here's, here's what it is, and then Monday comes. You got the miracle yesterday, but then Monday comes. And so if you didn't use that opportunity, that goodness of God to point you into deeper intimacy, Monday's coming. (laughs) See, the issue of lordship is key to the kingdom because the kingdom is like the king. We live in a city that believes we can get the kingdom without the king, and it just doesn't work that way. Because the kingdom takes the shape of the king. You need him. And so Jesus heals and he says, will you make me Lord? Because actually, it sounds intense, but it's what your heart really longs for. So Lordship, will you make him Lord this evening? Will you get once again say, I know I've said it before, but once again I say I give you everything. Secondly, faith. The confidence of the leper to just walk up to him, the, the imagination of the centurion. Jesus is so rocked by the faith of the centurion that he actually uses the centurion as an example for who makes it to the feast in the age to come. He's like, yeah, people with faith like the centurion, they're the ones who sit next to Abraham, not the Jewish leaders. Jeez, really? I wouldn't be caught saying that. I think you're gonna, somebody's gonna wanna kill you, and it actually happened. When you're in Christ, you become a believer. It may not be any news to you guys, but we're called believers because we believe something. (laughs) And what we believe is what God can do and what God is willing to do, right? And the problem for many of us comes, though, when our circumstances or the illness or the seemingly impossible situation becomes bigger than God in our hearts and minds. Most of us sitting here this evening, we would never claim that our experience dominates or decides our view of God, but for many people, their faith shrivels as they become bigger believers in the world around them and its problems instead of the promises of God. And so I think that Matthew's actually trying to get our faith up when he quotes Isaiah 53. He's saying, hey, this story isn't just a story, it's actually for you. It's for you, and it's for you. It's actually for you. Isaiah 53 isn't a promise that was more for people in the first century than people today. It was for humanity. And I would propose to you that promises, this is a funny metaphor, but they're kind of like bait. Like, like God just puts these, his promises in the scripture and he's like, they're in there, are you willing to actually uncover them and believe them? Because if you are, if you're willing to believe me for the impossible, then you're gonna see it happen in your life. I've seen more impossible things bend their knee to Jesus here than I ever imagined I would see, to be honest. I don't think I would preach with this kind of conviction if I hadn't actually seen heaven break into the natural realm. It's like weekly, guys, that we're seeing, uh, I know that you don't always get an inside view to all the stories we hear, and we'll do a better job in the future telling you guys stories, but it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing, and, and I, so I just think there is an opportunity for when we read promises of God to actually say, hey, I've never really taken this and believed this for me and my community, but God, you said it, and so I actually believe it's for today. I'm gonna believe you. He's looking for people crazy enough to bite <laughs> and believe, and then the impossible happens. But we have to be honest, when we talk about faith, especially when it's connected to healing, there's really two elephants that 
are in the room that we need to address. The, the first elephant is what if you don't have any faith? Is faith really connected to healing or is God just good enough to do it anyways? And the, uh, the other question that comes up is what if you have all the faith in the world but you haven't been healed? We're gonna go there. <laughs> what if you don't have any faith? The hard reality in the scriptures is that faith does have a role to play in healing. I believe that God is sovereign and I believe that he can enter in and he does as he pleases at times. I believe that he's good enough to heal even if you don't believe him for it. He'll take somebody else's faith. He's like, you got faith from? Okay, I'll take that. But, but, but I, I was writing the prayer training. I wrote the prayer training last year and we're doing it again this year, but I wrote the prayer training and when I was doing it, I was going through and I was just trying to find a way to disconnect faith from healing because it feels weird. It's like, are, are we, is it based on me, if I don't have any faith, will I not be healed? And I, look, I don't know how it all works, but there's this story where Jesus goes to his hometown and it says he only was able to heal a few because of their unbelief. John Wimber, some of you guys know who John Wimber is. He, he started the Vineyard Movement. We're really inspired by him here at Bridgetown. He, um, he actually, when he would have prayer gatherings, he, like a gathering like this, this size, this many people, he, somebody would say, hey, you know, I need prayer for this, I need healing for this, and he would actually say, okay, who, who believes that this person can be healed? So people are like, oh. And they said, okay, if you didn't raise your hand, then we actually need you to go into the other room for a moment, because we need people with faith here. <laughs> That's intense. Um, I, don't, I don't pretend to know how it works exactly, but I do know this. Unbelief is safe because it almost always gets what it expects. So what if you don't have faith? I actually have good news for you tonight. If you don't have faith, the way that you get faith isn't by striving for faith. You're like, ah, oh, I really want to have faith for this healing, so, <laughs> in Jesus' name. Um, that's not how we get faith. The way that we get faith is by getting close to the one who's faithful. <laughs> it is, actually. It's true. The way that I like to think about faith and how we actually get faith is by getting close to the one who's faithful. And some of you guys have actually been uh, around people who wear a, too much perfume, haven't you? You guys know how that works? Have you ever hugged somebody who's wearing too much perfume? <laughs> you're like, the rest of the day, you're like, I didn't want to smell like Axe. <laughs> and now I smell like Axe. Ugh. But I actually think that that's how faith works. See, God carries with him the scent of heaven, and when we get close to him, we end up carrying that scent throughout the rest of our day and the rest of our week. The reason why we read the scriptures isn't to check a box. It's actually because we need to see what God has done in the past, look upon his promises, get close to his character, that our faith might be strengthened. So we don't strive, we just get to the one who's faithful. But what if you don't get healed? Because this is, this is a really big question that many people have. What if you don't get healed? What if you have all the faith in the world and healing hasn't happened? Um, my wife, Emily, she's sitting over here. She's awesome. Um, she, she was born with scoliosis, and so she has um, a 30-degree curvature in her back, and so she just lives with this chronic level of discomfort um, and pain. 
And uh, sometimes it's worse than other times, uh, but at times it can be really excruciating and really painful. Her muscles are all overcompensating and, and, and all of that. And she, she, I was asking, you know, I run a lot of stuff by her, so we're talking about this message last night, and I was asking her about it because she hasn't been healed yet. And she said, you know, I'd never thought about giving prayer, getting prayer for it because it's not cancer, you know? Um, I'm not dying. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, it, it's just, you know, it's uncomfortable, but it's okay. And, and she told me that um, she began to actually a couple years ago, take the gospel and take Jesus at his word. That he's actually a good father who gives good gifts. It's in his nature to want to heal. And she's, she told me, she said, I don't always understand why he hasn't healed me. I don't know, it's a mystery to me, but his character isn't. She told me that she lives with the conviction of his character that no matter what, she won't change her mind on his goodness. She, she comes, and you'll see her sometimes, she'll, she'll come for prayer almost any time it's offered. If somebody's like, hey, we have a word for her back, she's down here. And she's actually kept her x-rays of the curvature in her spine so that she can one day medically show the healing that God has brought about in her life. Yeah. That's big faith. That's amazing. She lives with a faith that I want to encourage you in tonight instead of a settling that many of us have become so accustomed to. See, we, we have a commitment to transform our minds around the truth that God is good and not around what our experience tells us. We must be a people who don't raise our experience as being more authoritative than what God says to be true of himself. We gotta remember when we look at negative, evil circumstances in the world, we have to remember that God is at war. He's winning the war, but he's at war. And so we're told to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven because there are places where his will isn't being done. Like, how many of you guys know in a house that has a, a good dad who lives in that house, not everything that happens under that roof is that father's will. He's in charge of the house, but there's a lot of things that may happen under that roof that are not, he doesn't will. And I actually think that, that God is like that in our world. God is in charge, and he is winning, and he has place. Satan's neck is being squished by our feet and by Jesus' feet. but he's still firing off shots. The thief steals, kills, and destroys, and we need to call it for what it is. When we see evil, let's name its source. In our conversation, my wife said, she said, this is so profound, the gift of the Holy Spirit is greater than getting any individual healing because the indwelling Holy Spirit actually enables you to not live dependent on your circumstances changing. The Holy Spirit actually enables you to live in heaven while you're here on earth. And that's our gift. So we'll always pray that healing will come for you. We will always pray for healing. We believe God wants to heal you. But even more, we pray that for you, that you would know heaven in your soul, that peace that goes beyond understanding, that joy that doesn't make sense, regardless of the healing. So we must receive the kingdom, faith and lordship. Secondly, giving the kingdom. The other reality in a text like this is the transfer of ministry that God has given to us by the Holy Spirit. Because we've been incorporated into Christ, we no longer have an option not to take up his mission. We, we are literally to be Jesus to the world around us. 
And Jesus' vision statement, what he proclaims, Isaiah 61, at the, before his ministry becomes our vision statement. It says this in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The truth is that it's impossible for the spirit of God to rest upon someone and them not conquer something. And we have the exact same spirit. It says in Romans 8:11, the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in you. <laughs> I like to think of the idea of somebody driving to work. They're like, I could think, for this 30, these 30 minutes, I could think about the spirit of God being alive in me, the same one that rose Jesus from the dead, or I could listen to the news. <laughs> one of those things is gonna prepare you more for the office, and I promise you, it's not the news. <laughs> there is something about meditating on the mission that we've been given and the identity that's been settled that changes our internal reality and then comes out of us. See, we've been anointed to bring heaven to earth like Jesus brought heaven to earth, and in case you don't believe me, I have a few more passages I'd like to drop on you. So, Matthew 6, verse 9, it says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are our marching orders. Next slide. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Wow, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, theology test. How many spiritual blessings do you lack? None, none of them, none of them, <laughs> none of them. But I, I love that the, the enthusiasm was correct, none of them, right? We don't lack any spiritual blessing, we have all of them. That's, that's, that's there you go, yeah, yeah, exactly, next slide. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. When was the last time you just really pondered and you thought about, okay, what is Christ inheriting in this life and in the next? Because I need to know that because I'm inheriting the same thing. That's something worth meditating on. See, when Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, he didn't say on earth as it sort of is in heaven. Because listen guys, there's gonna be cancer and it's really tough and so don't get your hopes up. No, he said on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say um, on earth as it sort of is in heaven because um, well, there's gonna be people who are in abusive relationships and don't get your hopes up about them getting out of those or being healed emotionally. He didn't say that. He said no, on earth as it is in heaven, period. He invited us to shape our world not by what humans have come to call normal throughout the years, but by what exists in heaven. That's our privilege as followers of Jesus. That shifts the culture of a city. That changes atmospheres. So let's put our aim where Jesus told us to put our aim instead of settling for hell on earth and calling it normal. Now to end, um, maybe you're here tonight and you, you, you're hearing all this and you're reading this and you're going, but I haven't received that kind of abundance into my life. And I, and I just want to say, if you're here tonight and you haven't received Jesus, you haven't stepped into Christ, it's not a surprise. That might sound kind of harsh, but when you're not in Christ, you're at enmity with God. And so all of the blessing that you could have flowing in your life, the peace, the joy that comes with being in his presence, the fruit of the Spirit, of course you don't have. But here's the good news, it just takes a moment. Every other religion sets up a ladder, Jesus comes down and he just says, in one moment, I'll give it all to you. 
And so all you have to do, if you're here tonight, I just have this burden, I never wanna miss an opportunity to actually say, if you're here tonight, somebody brought you here, you don't follow Jesus, now is the time. If you, if, I don't care what you think about Christians, I don't care what you think about evangelicals, it doesn't matter, what do you think about him? Because he is beauty. What kind of God leaves his throne and goes to the sick? What kind of God is homeless? He doesn't have a place to lay his head. In order to reach the bottom up. Every other religion starts from the top down, but he goes bottom up. What is that? If you want him, he's here for the taking. And all you have to say is, Jesus, I want to know more about you. Come into my life and show me what you're like. And he'll guide you. I promise you the kingdom will come in your life. But maybe you're here tonight and you do follow Jesus, but you've been lulled into the idea that heaven is a glory reserved for another time. See, I believe that a passage like this at the very least must give us hope that that's not totally true. And so right now, I want you to do, as we end, I want you to do this. Close your eyes. And I want you to imagine the most impossible thing in your life right now. Maybe it's a friend that you know. Uh, Maybe it's something in your own body, in your own life. I just want you to actually picture in your mind's eye just the most impossible thing. Maybe somebody you know is sick and they're terminal and it's just not looking good. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that's broken and you just really have lost hope of that ever getting fixed. Maybe there's somebody in your life that, that doesn't follow Jesus and you can see the fingerprints of the enemy all over their life and you're just like, will it ever end? I want you to just picture that, that thing, that person. And now what I want you to do is I want you to imagine what you would ask Jesus to do if he just walked right up to you in that pew and he stood in front of you What are you asking for? What do you have faith for? Okay, you can open your eyes. Now, with that thing in your mind, that impossibility that you're thinking about, I want you to think about this. What's interesting about each of these three people in these stories we read is that they represent three different positions, physical positions, in relation to the presence of God in their temple of their day. Here's what I mean, here's a photo, a very simple photo of the temple of that day. Um, And what you can notice is there's these different courts in the yellow building would be the Holy of Holies. Only the priests went in there once a year. Um, One of the courts that's missing that we don't see there is the court of the lepers or the sick, right? That's because lepers weren't allowed even into the courts of the temple. And then we see the court of the Gentiles, right? And then a little bit further in, the court of the women. But then even further in, the court of Israel, that's where the men would be. And then the priest's court, and then the temple building, finally. See, Jesus, what's amazing about this story and the way that it's structured is that Jesus tears through each of these walls with each encounter. And he tears through the outside wall, and he lets the lepers in just a little bit closer to his presence. And then he tears through the other wall, and he says, yeah, the Gentiles too, and he lets them into his presence. And then finally, the women, he tears through that wall by, by healing Peter, Peter's mother-in-law, and he tears through that wall, and he says, there will be no wall that keeps me from people. And if you know the story, Jesus goes to the cross, and when he goes to the cross, it says that the veil that kept anyone from entering the Holy of Holies, God's tangible presence, that veil was torn top to bottom, a full opening And the final wall was broken down. Heaven invaded earth. And no longer would God be kept back from people by walls, but impossibilities would begin to bend their knees to King Jesus. 
And I want to invite you with that impossibility that you have in your mind or your heart tonight to bring it to the most holy place because that's what we've been welcomed into. That's our privilege to commune with God. So let's stand together and let's respond.